Here's a thought I want us to wrestle with today. Our bodies and our souls are linked. Our bodies and our souls are linked. Right? They're, they're linked. They're like bound together. And this is a challenge because a lot of times the things we do to our bodies negatively really impact our souls negatively. We experience deep inner suffering and deep inner conflict because of the things that we do in this physical world. And it would seem like they would just be separate. There's a spiritual life and there's a physical life, but that's not how God has designed it. They impact each other. Um, but there's also an opportunity here. Our good business folks in the room will tell you there's no problems, they're merely opportunities. So, got a good eye roll, I appreciate that, yes. We don't need more business speak in church on Sunday mornings. Um, but there is an opportunity if you recognize that sometimes when we're looking to get a little bit of soul healing, our bodies can help us get there. And the soul is kind of like this vague thing, how do we access it when we're feeling like hurt on the inside? That's a beautiful fact that it's linked. So you can do something on the outside that can have a positive impact on the inside. Um, your body is kind of like a key to your soul. Your body isn't just a vessel for it. They're not separate. They're not distinct. This is actually an ancient heresy. I don't know if you know about the Gnostics, but there was a whole mystery religion that grew up around the time of Jesus, around the time of John the Baptist. It was pseudo-Christian, Greek, philosophical, cultural hodgepodge. Um, but one of their main tenets was that everything in this world is bad and the spiritual is good. So the more you can like, do away with the physical, the more you can ignore the world, you can really focus on like, inner peace and that sort of thing. Um, it was heresy because God made the physical world and he said it's good. And then he made human bodies and he said they're good. And then he made a soul and put them in it and said that's awesome. My paraphrase. He said it was good. Good in the capital G God kind of way. Um, so the physical world is not bad. Our bodies are not bad. The physical is not wrong and spiritual is right. They're intertwined. They're made for one another. We don't want to fall into that. We're not allowed to separate our spiritual life from our physical life. Oswald Chambers has a great quote I wanted to read on this. Uh, this is from my utmost for his highest. He wrote, God makes us pure. So this is like the soul kind of work that God does right away. We believe in him. He's, he puts his stamp on us. He cleans us from the inside out. So God makes us pure by an act of his sovereign grace. But we still have something we must carefully watch. It is through our bodily life coming in contact with other people and other points of view that we tend to become tarnished by. Not only must our inner sanctuary be kept right with God, but also the outer courts must be brought into perfect harmony with the purity that God gives us through his grace. Our spiritual, so this is the inside, the spiritual vision and understanding is immediately blurred when our outer courts are stained. So we have this like interaction of our soul. Our soul is what is going to last forever. And if you don't know that Jesus has your soul like wrapped up and sealed and just protected and blessed, well then you need to make sure that you have that. And I look around the room, I know many of us in our walk with the Lord have experienced that. I'm excited for you for that. Our souls will live on, but our bodies will not. But our bodies are not just sort of like a temporary inconvenience. They're not just a vessel. They're an access point. They're, they're a connection point. They're a key to our souls. And so I want to talk about a, a spiritual skill set that we don't usually practice. And which you might think is kind of outdated. And you might ignore me. You might say, hey, this is not for me. And that's fine. But I would like to challenge us to consider whether the practice of solitude 
is actually a key, a physical key, to many of the things that our poor souls are struggling with. I, I want us to get to the point where we care maybe even more about our souls than we do our bodies. We need to care for our souls. Jesus died for our souls. He didn't die for our, our fingernails and our hairs and these bodies that are going to go away. Those are part of us, yes, but he died for the soul that's eternal. And so I want us to care about that. Jesus cared enough to die for that. So I want us to take care of our souls. I don't want to spend all our time just thinking about our bodies and this life and the physical side of things. I want to do things physically that can benefit the soul. Uh, How many of you know about Brother Lawrence? He has a a lifestyle. He lived back in the 1600s. He was a Christian monk in the uh, Carmelite tradition. Um, He has a book called Practicing the Presence of God. And he has a wonderful quote. And and as I read it, just picture, like, what if this was you? What if we could be like this? He says, the time of busyness does not differ with me from the time of prayer. And in all the noise and clatter of my kitchen, because he was a cook at the monastery, and all the noise and clatter of my kitchen, while several persons are at the same time calling for different things, I possess God in as great a tranquility as if I were on my knees at the blessed sacrament. That just kind of like soul peace. And it's a different thing than just quiet. Because we can be okay when things are chaotic. Or sometimes things are so chaotic that we just lose our minds. We're not okay because of the chaos. And that's what I want to get at. Solitude is is a key. It opens a door to a lot of these really inner things, which I think we would want. So for all of us that are overwhelmed by the busyness of our lives, you think Jesus had a busy life? Remember how everybody's clamoring after him, following him, he tries to get away, and they like chase after him. He got no rest from people, but he used solitude to establish that deep inner peace. What if that could be us? What about in decisions? We're conflicted. We don't know what to do. We don't, we've got the pros and cons list out. We're kind of thinking at a, at a brain level. What if we move that down to a soul level, and what if it's in that time of solitude that the decision we're really looking to make just becomes clear? Isn't that what Jesus did? He stepped back. He meditated. He got with the Lord. And then he stepped forward and did everything amazing. He he had this practice. And so what I want to do is, after I read um, Moses' practice, because I think that's just a fascinating way to look at it, I want to look at five places where Jesus practiced solitude and how they were keys to things like renewal, grief, crisis, Decision-making and, can I remember my other one? Oh, yeah, experiencing God's glory. But take a second with me and just remember Moses. Right? Charlton Heston, you know what he looks like. Big beard, big guy, big voice. Right. Um, He had a place that he went to for this solitude. You guys also know Superman, right? He has the Fortress of Solitude. He had a place that he could go. So whether you are more apt to... Look at Superman as your hero or Moses. I leave it up to you. Each of these heroes had some place that they went. Uh, note, uh, Moses called his the tent of meeting. So I don't know. I'm challenging you to practice solitude this week. Maybe you need to set up a tent in your backyard. Why not? Maybe you need to designate a place in your living room. Maybe you need to find some place to go. Maybe you need to get to Borderland. Maybe you need to sit in your car during your lunch break in the quiet there versus the lunch room or the cafeteria and find solitude there. I'm going to challenge us to create places to meet with the Lord and show why that was so powerful in Jesus' life. But this was Moses' experience. 
That's in Exodus 33. You don't need to turn there, but I'll read it for us. It says, Now Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp. And he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Now, whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. Now, when Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent. And the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and they would worship each at his tent door. And in this way, listen to this, in this way, the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Now, when Moses turned again into his camp, his assistant, Joshua, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Moses' example here is exactly what Jesus puts into practice as well. So I'll give you a few points that you can recognize as we now read Jesus' experience, the example we're truly supposed to follow. Moses just didn't stand in the middle of everything and say, Boop. he physically removed himself to some place that was designated for a meeting place with the Lord. I don't know if we can continue to be scrolling Facebook and also have that be a place of solitude with the Lord. I don't know if we can continue to have the radio playing and the TV on and talking with friends and clatter and noise and also have a place of solitude with the Lord. And also because we have ingrained wiring that repeats and reinforces over time, I'm not sure you can stay in any of your familiar places and have them suddenly become a place where you go to meet with the Lord. And you know, people who study habit making uh, talk about shaping what happens in places. And for people that have trouble with insomnia, they said the only thing you should do in your bed is just go to sleep. So your body is trained when you get there. That's what you do and have a rhythm, have a process. And there's many ways that people have studied the human body. You know, don't turn on the TV. Don't scroll Facebook. Don't even read a book. Just go to sleep. So whether that works for you or not, I would like to suggest that we need places for things. And if I were to ask us right now before talking about this, do you have a place where you go when you and the Lord need to be alone? I would say most of us probably don't. And I'm making an assumption there, so I don't really know. But we need that. Because that means if you don't, you have no place that you can go to be alone with the Lord. And that doesn't sound right, does it? That doesn't sound right. And obviously it's the extreme, but if you don't have a place you can go and that you can name and say, this is where I can go to be alone with the Lord, that means you have no place you can go to be alone with the Lord. And he's with us always, so it isn't a, a, a statement about his proximity. It's a statement about intention and about noise. And you might say, ah, practicing solitude, that's for monks and people in bygone eras. And I say, well, doesn't it seem like our world now is noisier than ever? And doesn't it seem like it's more confusing than ever? And doesn't it seem like there's more stress on us than ever? And doesn't it seem like we're trying to do more than ever? Then don't we need breaks more than ever? But solitude isn't just a Sabbath day, right? Because you aren't always alone on Sabbath days. So having a practice of a weekly day of worship and rest, that's partly solitude, but not exactly. Right? It is rest, sort of, but you don't necessarily go into solitude just to sleep. So it's like rest, but it's not. It's kind of like silence, but if you recognize with Moses, he was there with Joshua. We're going to see that Jesus goes into solitude with his disciples sometimes. He's doing solitude with them. So it's not even always alone. It's where you go to meet with the Lord. And if you have someone with you, you're both there just to meet with the Lord. One of you isn't there to meet with the Lord. The other one's there to talk about the news. 
you know, that you're both there with purpose and it's a place. I encourage you to find a place. Um, I remember there was an anecdotal story that was told about Charles Wesley's mom. And uh, he grew to be, uh, you know, an amazing man of God. And I think he was one of like 17 kids or something like that. And the story was about his mother that um, she would be in the middle of the kitchen and she would sit down on a stool and she'd be wearing an apron and she would just take the apron and put it up over her head. And when she was in that place, the kids were not allowed to disturb her. They're not allowed to talk to her. She created her cone of silence in the middle of it. And don't you mess with mama when the apron is in the prayer position. And she would just sit and she would pray. And do you think that that mother's prayers, her ability to craft a location for solitude, you think that didn't have an impact on her sons growing up to write hymns, start the Methodist denomination as we know it today, and many others? Of course it did. So I encourage you, if you're looking to pray into people's lives, if you're looking to find wisdom for yourself, if you're looking to connect, if you're looking for relief, a refuge, make a place. Some people call it a prayer closet. Some people have a prayer shawl. There's many ways, but don't go without this. Jesus didn't go without this. And if there's anyone that didn't need you know, help, we would think it would be him, the Son of God. And yet he used this skill set all the time. Christians must practice solitude. And actually, solitude is a very important part of church. And this is another quote I wanted to read before we look at those five things from Jesus. This is Dietrich Bonhoeffer from his book, Life Together. And he talks about the difference between being alone and being together. He says it this way, kind of contrasts them. Let him who cannot be alone beware of community. So like if you have a hard time ever being on your own, you're constantly filling your social schedule with people, like beware of community then. It might actually just be a, a numbing agent because you're afraid to have that personal conversation that you need to with the Lord. It's an avoidance technique, right? But he goes on and he says, um, let him who is not in community beware being, of being alone. So those of us who would much rather be on our own, be careful going to that comfort zone all the time because we need people to support us, to know us, to challenge us, to speak into our lives. And you can't get that when you're on your own. So Christian community is both together and apart. He goes on to say, one who wants fellowship without solitude plunges into the void of words and feelings. That sounds like Facebook. The void of words and feelings. Right? We want to be around people. We want to just, we're plunged into a void, a never-ending source of stuff. But the one who seeks solitude without any fellowship perishes in the abyss of vanity and self-infatuation and despair. We can get thinking really great about ourselves when there's no one else to contradict that. And we can also really feel terrible about ourselves when it's not necessary if there's no one to pick us up. So alone is not better. Together is not better. Both make Christian community solitude as well as community. But we don't usually talk about it. And so that's why I wanted to challenge us with this spiritual practice. Practice solitude. Be an example for your children, for your family, for your coworkers, for people in the world who are harried and frenzied. That you could have soul peace even if the physical world around us is kind of going wild. This really relates well to prayer as well. It's a type of prayer. Like Jesus always went away. We're going to see in these verses. One way to pray. Uh, the Greek word, <coughs> excuse me, for prayer is a compound word. And it's pros ukamai. And pros means you like come before someone. Kind of like before a king. Literally before the face of someone. 
And then yukamai means your wishes and your vows, the things we want, the things we say, the things we ask for, the things we give. So prayer is putting those together with God. We come before the face of God with all of our wishes and all of our vows. Everything we need from him, please, 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 and everything we offer him, here I am, Lord, send me. That's a wonderful definition of prayer, and maybe it's even a little bit better definition than we've settled for. Have you prayed? Okay, we sit, we fold our hands, close our eyes, we talk about here's the wish list with God, our needs. Like Those are fine, but they're just like a part of prayer. What if you think of your prayer times as coming before the face of God, like Moses did, right? 2 Corinthians talks about that. We're very bold. He went and then put a veil over his face, but we have all had the veil removed and we become more and more like God as we experience his glory. So what we're talking about here is prayer, but maybe not in the way that we've defined it. So here are the five ways that I see Jesus using solitude as a key. And the first one, he uses it as a key to renewal, to renew his soul. In Luke 5, 15, um, it says, Luke records, Now even more the report about Jesus went abroad, and so great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. Jesus did this for his disciples as well. Mark 6, verse 30 says, The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves, to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And so they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. The, the desolate place can be a wilderness, uh, it can be translated as the desert, went out into the desert, um, a secluded place, isolated place. Jesus knew that this was necessary. Just like the seasons cycle, just like there's life cycles of things, our bodies and our minds and even our souls need this cycle, need permission and space to renew. So when Jesus was overburdened by teaching everybody and healing everybody, and when the disciples were overburdened by that, they practiced solitude. And you notice that he called them to come away with him. So they practice solitude together. It doesn't have to be isolating, and that can be its own danger. You can just isolate. I need space. I need, well, maybe you need to do solitude with someone, pray with someone, sit, worship with someone. I just sit closely with someone, even without talking. A solitude can be a communal practice. It does not have to be isolating. So this first key, just really simply, it gives us a break from the constant demands being made on our mind, and our thoughts. So in order to renew, we have to stop the steady drain on our resources and the incessant stimulation of the world. And I guess I would just kind of caution us here to say that there's lots of ways that we do try to find this and they're not all Jesus's way. You know, how, where do we go when we need space? Some people go to the bar or to the liquor cabinet and that may kind of be a temporary solution in the short term, but it's not going to provide any soul peace. That's an example of using your body in a way negatively that's actually going to have a negative impact on your soul. Um, some people have friends and they just stay busy and that gives them a sense of, okay, everything's okay because I'm around my people and my people are okay and we're having a good time. Yeah, but the things that were weighing on you, those haven't gone away just because you spent time with friends. Soul renewal needs space to work, a stopping of all the demands. 
Um, and Jesus is the one who promises this. Do you remember where he said, take my yoke upon you? Come to me, all you who are labor and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For those of us that are exhausted, have you ever considered maybe it's not your body that's tired, but it's your soul? Maybe your soul is weary, and you don't need one more hour of sleep. It's not going to fix what's wrong. You ever considered that? So how does a soul get rest? We separate ourselves from the world and sit with Jesus. Come to him if you're weary, if you're heavy burdened. I encourage us not to just think of our sleep schedule and our diet as the solution to exhaustion and overwork. Because you can actually be very busy and not be stressed. And you can sleep a lot and still feel bad the next day. So if anyone in this room here needs renewal, that's like the deep inner things, I encourage you to try practicing solitude this week. Set aside a place. Create it. Make your tent of meeting. And go and sit face to face with the Lord and just talk. I would suggest that you will feel more renewed after that than you would after 12 hours of sleep. A lot of what we're struggling with is soul fatigue, not just physical. And no amount of going to the gym or good eating is going to heal the soul. Solitude can help heal the soul. So this moves us to the next one. Uh, solitude is a key to healing a grieving soul. Have you ever considered that your soul could be sad? Right? We know the Holy Spirit can be grieved within us. We know that our mind can have sad feelings. We can have emotions. But what if your soul is grieved? What if who you are as a person has suffered some sort of trauma or sadness or loss or betrayal? Sometimes that's deeper than just, oh, I have thoughts of feeling discouraged. It's like, no, I've been impacted inside by how this person treated me, by how this situation went down, by my feelings of insecurity or by my indecision, my conflicted thoughts. Solitude is a key to giving your soul time to grieve and space to grieve. Jesus practiced this. In Matthew 14, he heard about John the Baptist being beheaded, his cousin. His friend, his brother, the forerunner of Jesus' ministry, John the Baptist's ministry. And this is what he did when he heard about it. Matthew 14, 10. John, oh, he, Herod, sent and had John the Baptist beheaded in prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to the mother. Now his disciples, John the Baptist's disciples, came and took his body and buried it. And then they went and told Jesus. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. Why does solitude help with a grieving soul? Because God's the only one that can really know your soul. And so he's the only one that can really help you with the grief you're feeling. Every other version of that, if I just like, get enough rest, I'll be okay. That's avoidance. It's not honoring the grief that you feel. Well, if I just have an extra beer tonight, I don't have to think about it. 
Well, that's avoidance. You're not dealing with the fact that you're just wounded. What if you went to a doctor and you had an open wound? He's like, here, just take an aspirin. The wound needs tending to. Jesus is the overseer of our souls. That's the phrase that Peter uses. The overseer, the shepherd and overseer of our souls. So go to a soul doctor when your soul is what's wounded. Go to God when it's deeper than just I'm disappointed. It's like, no, this has cut me at a soul level. And no amount of sleep or ignoring or entertainment or new books to read or avoiding the issue or distraction or new projects is going to actually take away that wound until God heals it. We're looking for healing from the Lord. And so solitude gives us a chance to stop talking to people, stop getting more input. Because when you're in that raw state, you're not really safe to be around. That's when someone could say one thing and it hits the raw nerve and you lose it. That's when more things hit the same nerve and because you haven't healed, can't hear it, can't take it, hurts more. It's compounding soul injury. Jesus heard about his best friend being beheaded. And he just went and out to his tent of meeting, his quiet place, out into the desolate place. He removed himself from people and said, Father, I want to sit with you face to face. So what do you think Jesus was sharing in that moment? Wishes or vows? <laughs> I think it was all wishes in that moment. I don't think Jesus needed to promise God or vow anything. He just, I need comfort, Father. Only you can heal a soul. And my soul is what's hurt right now. So Jesus used solitude as a heal to as a, a key to healing souls. If you're grieving this morning, if you're suffering from loss, consider whether solitude might be actually medicine, a balm. It's what Jesus practiced when he needed it. I encourage you to take that challenge this week as well. All right, uh, third one. Solitude is a key to deep soul-level decision-making. So maybe some of us are trying to make decisions about jobs or about homes or about cars or about relationships or about money or about faith. All sorts of things. Have you ever considered that maybe it isn't your brain that's in conflict? It's actually your soul that's conflicted. What I mean by that is if it was literally just a logical thing, I should pick this or pick this, then why is it so hard to make this particular decision for you or for me? Maybe because even though our brain knows what it could do, our heart knows what it should do. And maybe if we sat with the Lord in the quiet, He'd help us have the courage to do what our soul knows we should do. And we're debating the options when really it's a much simpler decision than we make it. A lot of times more information is not helpful. So you don't need more information to make your decision. You need wisdom. And we get wisdom from God. Right? That's in James 1.5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind. That person must not suppose he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man. Double-minded, of two minds, conflicted, unstable. So maybe if you're in a crisis of decision-making, you're feeling conflicted. You're of two minds. It could be this or it could be this. I should do this or I should do this. But maybe your heart already knows and your soul already knows what you need to do and you're just fighting it. Are you making it more complicated than it needs to be? Solitude is a way to just stop all the input. No more information. Okay, whatever we have information at this point is enough. Step away with the Lord. So this is Jesus' example. This one's in Luke 6, 12. 
And it says, in these days he went out to the mountain to pray. Now you recognize it's not a desert anymore, it's a mountain. He's going to meet with God for like a, a glorious purpose. It's not a grieving, it's not a renewal sort of thing. He's going to like a mountaintop experience, you could say. So in these days, he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer with God. So not again like a, a literal, here is a formulaic prayer. He's coming before the face of God. It's the tent of meeting. He's talking to God face to face as he would a friend. And the next verse, and then when day came, he called to his disciples and he chose from them 12, whom he called the apostles. That's a, a world changing, a history changing decision. Who are the 12 going to be? Jesus looks out at all these people that are following, he's going to pick the 12. It's what he did before that decision is he just spent the night with the Lord, with the Father, saying, what should we do? And then he got up and he made the decision. He didn't need more information about the resumes of all of his followers. He didn't need better recommendations and references from them to decide who was telling him the right thing and who wasn't. He didn't pick them based on their goodness. He picked Judas, knowing that he would have a role to play despite being a thief, despite being a betrayer. But those were the right 12, as the history of the world would indicate, and as our faith shows, we're in that genealogy of faith. So Jesus went away to make decisions. If anyone here this morning is caught in indecision, is conflicted, I challenge you to use solitude this week as a practical practice to say, I'm stopping all the input. What we have is what we have. God, help me make a decision. And it works because it's intentional. You're going to the Lord for a decision. It's deciding moment. It's time. And a lot of times we put off decisions far too long. We wait on this, we wait on that. I'll make a decision later. Or what about this? Or I'm not ready for this. Or it's not time yet. And we could have actually made decisions far earlier than we did. That's okay. God's patient. Um, but sometimes it's just time. Time to be decisive. Not time to wait any longer. And so when you come to that moment, find your mountain. Go set aside a place to be with the Lord face to face and let him speak. Now another amazing thing happened in our fourth key uh, when Jesus was on a mountain. And um, this key is solitude is a key to God's glory, to experiencing it. Um, I, I kind of said when I, I got up here, I wasn't ready for the music to be over yet today. I think I could have used another hour of that this morning. I was just enjoying it. Sometimes we have those experiences. We go away on a retreat or something. You go to a church service. You're, you're someplace, a prayer meeting, a fellowship time. You just come away and you're feeling like high off of that feeling. It feels so good. You felt like God was present. Well, why doesn't that happen all the time? God is still God all the time. There's something about experience that we go away for a certain purpose in a certain place, another one of these mountains, coming to God for the glory. Um, and Jesus' most famous expression of God's glory happened uh, in one of those times away to pray. This one is in Luke 9, verse 28. It says, Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter, John and James. So he's taking people with him to his solitude. And he went up on the mountain to pray. Now as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzlingly white. Like he was transfigured. He transformed in front of their eyes from the man who they had seen and walked with to this angelic being. He was showing who and what he was on the inside, who and what he was as the Son of God. And so all those people, they were just blown away. They went to this place, and because they were moved... Now, did he choose to do that in the middle of the town square? 
No. Did he choose to do that for everyone? No. But because they went away to the mountain to seek God's face, God showed up there in a glorious way. Think about any of those retreats you might have gone away or a mission trip overseas. Don't you go with the expectation? We're going to meet God there. God's going to do something. Our serve home projects. <coughs> the anticipation, the asking. Does this remind you of um, <clears throat> what Jesus said? I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Opened. Uh, I'll read the rest of it. He says, For what father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will instead give him a scorpion? If then you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So I think those mountaintop experiences are a direct result of saying, I want to have a mountaintop experience with you, Father. I want to set aside a place to go experience your glory. And whether we go alone or go with others, you're seeking after it. Why would God not want to connect with us in that way? Now, is that every minute of every day? No, that wasn't Jesus' experience as well. But he set aside times and he sought after it. Some of the most common things that I hear from people as they kind of walk the Christian life is, I just don't feel God speaking to me. I don't know, I just don't feel it in the same way. Or, I just need clarity, but God's not giving me clarity in this thing. Or, I just feel so like inundated and overwhelmed and I can't, I don't know how to find peace. You need to get with God for that. Like that those are God's area. That's the Holy Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness. Faithfulness, missing one, and self-control, which is the ninth. <laughs> you know, th those are God's things. And why wouldn't he give us those things? So I'm not usually rude in my responding to people when they say that. But when someone comes to us and says, I just don't feel God, I guess the question is, well, when did you set aside time to go talk to him? How are you seeking him? Do you think he's not there to be found? Jesus set aside time on the mountain and he transfigured. What would it look like for us if we were transformed in the same way? So here's our fifth one. And then just a quick word at the end about loneliness and how it relates to solitude. Because there's a lot of courage that it takes uh, to step into solitude. It can be a vulnerable place. So the last one that I see is from Jesus leading up to the Easter story. And us being two weeks away from Easter, I wanted to close with it. Um, Solitude is a key to caring for our souls in crisis. Solitude is a key for crisis. And so I want to read from Jesus in the garden. He's about to be arrested, about to, he's in the process of being betrayed. This is Easter season. We need to think about these things and how Jesus handled them. He withdrew away to pray when the moment of crisis was drawing near. It was not the time for going and doing more miracles. It was not the time for having, you know, discourse on theological concepts with Pharisees and scribes. Like, the only thing that was on his mind was that the moment was here. And it was a crisis. He was about to be betrayed to his death. And so this desire to remove himself from everything else and put himself before the Lord, before God's face, uh, is, is a powerful example. And for us, anticipating crisis in moments of crisis, I challenge us to think about Jesus' example. And again, it's not isolation, it's solitude. And he practiced it with his disciples. So let's hear this together. This is Matthew 26, verse 36. 
Matthew writes, Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, the Garden of Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. So he does create even an isolated moment with them. And he, taking Peter and two sons of Zebedee, James and John, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to the point of death. His crisis, the agony, was a soul agony. Jesus didn't need more rest to feel better about it. He didn't need a different diet. He didn't need theological discussions. His soul was just in crisis mode. And this is what he did. He got together with his people and he got together with the Lord. He stepped away. So verse 39, oh, verse 38, he says, So remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and he prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And then he came to his disciples and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Could you not watch with me for just one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation, because the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So again, for a second time, he went away. He practiced solitude and prayer. My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. So again, he came back and he found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. And so leaving them, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to his disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. The hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. A crisis demands all of our attention. A crisis cannot be put on a back burner. A crisis cannot share your mind with other thoughts. A crisis does not give you relief. A crisis is relentless. A crisis is deeper than just facts and details and situations. And so Jesus' soul was sorrowful because of this crisis. And his response was not to run away, was not to marshal the troops and fight back, was not to be in despair and quit or hide. It was to go sit before God the Father. Because the most terrible thing about a crisis is you don't know how it's going to work out. We don't know if it's going to work or not. He had this foreknowledge that we're not privy to most times. And so we're in crisis mode. We don't know if the person who's in the hospital is going to live or die. Or the cancer prognosis that we got is going to be true or false or fatal or not. And we don't know if our children are going to grow up well or have terrible experiences that they'll need to struggle through. We don't know, and that's the point of crisis. So who's the only one that knows what's actually going to happen? It's God the Father. So where else can you go in a time of crisis than to the one who knows what's going to happen and say, your will be done. I submit to you, and whatever that means for me and my own sacrifice, whatever pain that might mean, I know your will is going to be the best thing possible. So help me to facilitate whatever it is that you want to have happen. In crisis, we need the solution. And the one who knows the solution is the Father. It's not the time to busy ourselves with anything else other than to get alone with God and say, we need to focus. You know, just like with uh, busyness and renewal, if you're in inner crisis mode, you're not going to be fun to be around. That's when someone says one little thing to you and you explode on them because you're just 
frantically at your last nerve, but it's inside, it's not visible because it's a soul sort of thing. So do everyone a favor <laughs> and don't stay on your last nerve walking around as if everything's fine. Stop everything. Take a break from your job. Take space from your family. Take some of those paid time off days that you need and don't just go and do something fun and take your mind off it. Because if what we have is a soul in crisis, it needs healing and it needs God to do something so you can come back to the normal world, back to the real world and be better in some way. That's what Jesus did. So here's the last word on loneliness versus solitude. Uh, it's actually a reading that I want to read. It's from Henry Nouwen's book, Reaching Out. I'm just going to read this and then give us five minutes to just be silent with the Lord. We're going to set up our own tents of meeting. If anyone brought a tent, feel free to set it up in the aisles or outside. If you did not, feel free to put your apron over your head. If you are not wearing an apron, feel free to close your eyes. Uh, feel free to come forward and kneel at the altar. Kneel where you are. Or just sit quietly. But I ask that you not engage with each other um, to give everybody space. We can be together and practice solitude. And that's what we're going to do. And it may be that one of these five keys today in Jesus' life is exactly what we need, and there's a door that we've not been able to get through, and so I want you to think about that. Um, but don't be afraid of solitude. It takes courage to go there, and so I'd like to speak this as an encouraging word. Like I said, it's kind of a, a longer reading. Give me a minute or two to just speak these truths to us, and then I'm going to give us five minutes before we go to communion. Nowen writes, <clears throat> in the middle of all of our worries and concerns, which are often disturbingly similar over the years, we can become more aware of the different poles between which our lives vacillate and are held in tension. These poles offer the context in which we can speak about the spiritual life because they can be recognized by anyone who is striving to live a life in the spirit of Jesus Christ. Now this first polarity deals with our relationship to ourselves. It is the polarity between loneliness and solitude. The life of Jesus has made it very clear that the spiritual life does not allow bypasses. By bypassing our loneliness or our hostilities or our illusions, that will never lead us to solitude, to hospitality, to prayer. But it is far from easy to enter into the painful experience of loneliness. You like to stay away from it. It is this most basic human loneliness that threatens us, and it is so hard to face. Too often we'll do everything possible to avoid the confrontation with the experience of being alone. And sometimes we're able to create the most ingenious devices to prevent ourselves from being reminded of this condition. Our culture has become most sophisticated in the avoidance of pain. Not only our physical pain, but our emotional pain and mental pain as well. We not only bury our dead, we also bury our pains. But by running away from our loneliness and trying to distract ourselves with people and special experiences, we do not realistically deal with our human predicament. We're in danger of becoming unhappy people, suffering from many unsatisfied cravings and tortured by desires and expectations that never can be fulfilled. Does not even all creativity ask for a certain encounter with our loneliness? And doesn't the fear of this loneliness severely limit our possible self-expression? 
These are hard questions because they come forth out of our wounded hearts. But they have to be listened to, even when they lead to a difficult road. The difficult road is the road of conversion, the conversion from loneliness into solitude. Instead of running away from our loneliness and trying to forget it or deny it, we have to protect it, turn it into a fruitful solitude. To live a spiritual life, we must first find the courage to enter into the desert of our loneliness and to change it by gentle and persistent efforts into a garden of solitude. This requires not only courage, but also a strong faith. As hard as it is to believe that the dry, desolate desert can yield endless varieties of flowers, it is equally hard to imagine that our loneliness is hiding unknown beauty. The movement from loneliness to solitude, however, is the beginning of any spiritual life. Because it is the movement from restless senses to the restful spirit. It's a movement from the outward-reaching cravings to an inward-reaching search. From the fearful clinging to the fearless play. It's probably difficult, if not impossible, to move from loneliness to solitude without any form of withdrawal from a distracting world. And therefore, it is understandable that those who seriously try to develop their spiritual life are attracted to places and situations where they can be alone. Sometimes for a limited period of time, sometimes more or less permanently. But the solitude that really counts is the solitude of the heart. It is an inner quality or attitude that does not depend on physical isolation. A man or woman who has developed this solitude of heart is no longer pulled apart by the most diverging stimuli or the surrounding world, but is able to perceive and understand this world from a quiet, inner center. The development of this inner sensitivity is the beginning of a spiritual life. I'll read that last sentence one more time and then give us a few minutes to just sit with the Lord. The development of this inner sensitivity is the beginning of a spiritual life.